Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we're continuing on the fruit of the Spirit. Two weeks ago, we looked at love. Last week, we looked at joy. Today, we're looking at peace. And I asked you last week, what's the difference between joy and peace? And there's a little bit of a difference. Okay, so let's look in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. This is where we've been the past few weeks. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. So third on the list is peace. And so we're going to talk a little bit about peace because it really ties back to the Old Testament understanding of the word shalom. Shalom is the Old Testament Hebrew word for peace. But I want to start tonight with words of Jesus. So Jesus, when he had his disciples together on the night that he was going to be betrayed, the night that he was going to be arrested, in John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Okay, so just looking at what Jesus' words there about peace gives us some insight into what a lack of peace would be. Okay, so just before we even dive into the scriptures tonight, Jesus says, I leave you my peace. I give you my peace. And he says, let not your hearts be what? Troubled. Don't let them be afraid or anxious. Okay, so Jesus is leaving them peace. Now, it's interesting because in the time that Jesus lived, they were living during the Roman Empire when Caesar was the emperor. And Caesar Augustus, um, before Jesus was born, but basically from 30 BC to around 14 AD, Caesar Augustus led Rome to take over the world. And once Rome conquered the world, it was called the Pax Romana. That's Latin for peace, the, the peace of Rome. So the emperor brought peace to the land, but it was peace through military warfare. Um, He erected this altar of peace to inaugurate this air of peace. And if you go to Rome today, you can still see the altar of peace that Caesar Augustus brought in. And so when Jesus says, I'm leaving you peace, his disciples may have thought back then, well, okay, Jesus, is your peace going to come the way the Roman emperor brought peace? Is it going to come through military might? Is it going to come through power? Jesus, are you going to ride a horse into the capital and overthrow the emperor and set yourself up as king? Is that how you're going to come, Jesus, with that type of peace? How did Jesus come? As a little baby in Bethlehem in a manger. So that's probably why Jesus says the world can't give you this peace, which is interesting. Is there such a peace that the world can give? The world can promise you false peace. Because the world's so cutthroat, selfish, prideful, and sinful, 
the world really cannot promise you anything that resembles the true peace of Christ. It's a false peace. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet warned about this worldly type of false peace um, in Jeremiah 6, 13-15. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the wounds of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Peace, peace. So what's a false type of worldly peace? That the world can give you. The world may say, cheat on your taxes and you'll have a peace about having that little extra bit of income to go on that trip you've always wanted to go on. But then at late at night when you're laying there in bed, do you really have a peace for cheating on your taxes? The world may say, stab your co-worker in the back, gossip about them, and then you'll have the peace of getting a promotion. And you'll have it easy from here on out. Two months later, the same thing happens to you. And you get your reputation ruined at work. There's a lot of ways that the world can promise you peace. Just do these things that are sinful and you'll just have this. Things will go good for you. That's a false type of peace. That's the type of peace that the world can't give. So... The first way to understand what Jesus says about peace here is to think about his disciples are thinking, this must be a peace that comes through power, the way the Roman emperor brought peace. And Jesus is like, no, it's a peace that the world can't give. And then secondly, because it's steeped in the Old Testament, the idea of peace comes from this Jewish understanding. These Jewish men would have understood the word peace um, from the Old, Old Testament where we get the word peace Make sure it's on the screen. The word shalom. So the word peace that Jesus is referring to is more than just an absence of war. It means something different. So what is shalom that the Old Testament talks about? Um, There's a lot of good definitions out there. One of the good definitions I found is from um, scholar Leon Morris. Uh, He's an Australian. He's no longer living. But he says this. He gives this definition of shalom. It stands for spiritual well-being at the highest level, a prosperity of soul resulting from being in a right relationship with God, not just a feeling of calm, but the life confidence of reconciliation with God. In the Old Testament, when they talked about shalom, it was the highest sense of security and well-being that you could have just in life and with God. So, for example, the ironic blessing that we often say at the end of worship services in, in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That shalom, that well-being. Psalm 29, 11, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Shalom. Okay, so... As we think about peace, the way the Bible defines peace, there are three major 
descriptions of peace that the Bible gives. So we're going to look at that tonight. Okay? So let me just tell you what they are, and then we'll unpack them. Okay. There's number one. This is the most important. There's peace with God. Peace with God. It's not on your screen yet. I'm just giving you a preview. It'll, it'll come up in just a minute. Number two, the peace of God. The peace with God, peace of God. And number three, peace with other people. Okay, so the first is the most important. You can't have the other two without the first. So the first is an objective peace with God that results from our salvation. Okay. This, is being, this is the result of you being saved by grace. Okay, so Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay. This is the objective, bona fide peace with God that comes when you get saved. Now, if you have to have peace with God, what does that assume about your relationship before you're with God? What's the opposite of peace? I'm not hearing all the statements. What's the, I'm at, this is like, we can interact tonight. What's the opposite of peace? Turmoil. War. Enmity. Okay, so this assumes that before our salvation, before we have a relationship with Jesus, we're at war with God. We're enemies with God. We need to be reconciled. What does the word reconciled mean? So, for example, if a, if a married couple divorces and they say they divorce for irreconcilable differences, what does that mean? Irreconcilable. They, they could not reconcile. They could not come back and be one. They could not make peace. Okay. So, Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? Okay. We needed to be reconciled with God. Now, do most people wake up each morning thinking to themselves, I'm an enemy of God? What do most people think? If there's a God out there, he's okay with me. I haven't done anything really wrong in my life. I'm not at war with God. I'm not an enemy of God. The problem is, is that God's the one who's the offended party, and every single person needs to be brought back into a right relationship with God. Uh, Romans 8, 6-8 says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Though, if, if you're a non-Christian, you cannot please God because you're hostile to God. Your mind is at enmity with God. So you need to be reconciled. So to reconcile means to be brought together or restore after hostility. And then Paul says something very interesting in Ephesians 2, 12 through 14. So we're talking about peace with God. Peace with God. Peace with your creator. 
Ephesians 2, 12 through 14. Remember that when you remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Separated from Christ. Alienated. Look at those words. Okay. Separated, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice Jesus is our peace. What was our situation before we had salvation? What what words does the Bible use? We were alienated. We were estranged. We were enemies. We needed to be reconciled. What did Jesus do by his blood? He brought us back into a right relationship with God. Jesus is our our peace. What does Isaiah say at Christmas time? What do we talk about? He's the prince of peace. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you, and these are... Look at these words again. You, you who were once, okay, this is once what you were before, you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now he's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the first type of peace that the Bible talks about before you can experience any other type of peace is peace with God. And so this peace with God comes from having your sins forgiven and being forever in a permanent position of acceptance before God through justification. So it's just like this. When you trust Jesus for salvation, all of your sins are credited to Jesus. He takes all your sins. And yet all of his righteousness, all of his perfect life, his perfect record, that's credited to you. So not only are your sins forgiven, but you're given a right relationship with God that's permanent, that's forever, that gives you peace. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? So this, this type of peace with God is lasting. It's objective. It's something that you always stand in. If you're saved, you're always at peace with God because your sins have been forgiven. It gives you confidence to know that God has accepted you. He's forgiven you. You can never be punished for your sins. You'll never have to experience the condemnation of hell. So this is the first type of peace, peace with God. And this was the message that the, the, the New Testament talks about when they were sharing the message of the gospel in Acts 10.36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. The good news of peace. That you can have peace. You can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You can have your sins forgiven. You can forever stand in a position of being accepted forever by God. And then part of the weapon, the weapon of our warfare, part of the spiritual armor, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's the good news of peace with God. So that is the first type of peace that the Bible talks about. Non-Christian, Unsaved person, 
you're alienated, you're an enemy, you're estranged, you're separated, you need to be at peace with God. The only way that peace can be achieved is through Jesus' blood on the cross shed for you. Jesus is your peace. He brings you into that right relationship. And once you're saved, you stand forever permanently at peace with God. So this is a peace that can never change. Is this peace, can this peace be taken away from you? Does this peace fluctuate? Is it a permanent standing? Okay, that's the peace with God. Okay, now there's a second type of peace that the Bible talks about. Okay, so there's peace with God. The second type is the subjective peace of God that results from prayer. Peace of God. Didn't Jesus say, don't let your hearts be troubled, don't let your hearts be afraid? Okay, so when we're, when we're in those times where we doubt, where we fear, we're stressed, we're confused, we're bothered, we're anxious, after we're saved, even though we have that permanent position of peace, when we're anxious, when we're stressed, when we're nervous, when we're um, afraid, Jesus gives us an experiential peace deep within our hearts where he lets us know of his presence to help us through those difficult times. So this is more of a feeling, a sense of his presence, something that comes as a result of prayer. This is a, more of an experiential type of peace. Okay. Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So, oftentimes the Bible talks about fear in relationship to peace. Jesus says, peace I give you, don't be afraid. When you're fearful, you oftentimes don't have peace. When you're anxious, you oftentimes don't have peace. What is this peace? It's this internal sense of calm of confidence, of steadiness, of security, that Jesus is with you and he's going to get you through it. Okay? So Philippians 4, 6 through 7, that's probably the most famous passage. This is the peace of God. So Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be, what's the key word there? anxious about anything. I, this must be something we need to hear, Troy. We've had this twice in a week. We had this Monday morning in our men's study. Uh, Jerry, too. Um, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, so when you're anxious... Don't be anxious, Paul says. What are we supposed to do? Pray. Take it to the Lord. Now, what I find interesting about that passage of Scripture, just look at that passage of Scripture. Does Paul say God's going to answer you the way you want God to answer you? Does, that, does it say that in the text? Does it say God's going to answer your prayer when you want it answered? Now, does God answer prayer? Yes. Does God answer it in the timing we want? Not always. Can God's answer be no? Can God's answer be wait? Or can God's answer be, I'm going to give you peace that passes understanding and just trust me? 
until I give you the answer. I mean, the, the point is, what Paul says we're promised here is the peace. Now, notice it's interesting. It's a peace that, what, passes understanding. Why would Paul say it passes understanding? Have you ever had an experience in your life where you prayed about something, you were anxious, you were nervous, and then God just gave you a peace, and you just knew it? And somebody says, why are you so calm about this? Why are you not so stressed out? And what's your answer to them? I really can't explain it. It's just I have a peace about it. If I could explain it, I would, but I really can't because I should be stressed out. I should be anxious, but I'm not. I've got this sense of peace that passes understanding. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 6. Let me get you in your Bibles tonight. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25-34, and we're going to do a little exercise here, a counting exercise to make sure you guys are awake. And if you have a partner tonight, you guys can play the game together, or you can just do it by yourself. I want you to count how many times the word anxious shows up in this passage. Are you ready? Matthew 6, 25. And I've already counted them. <laughs> Do you have, already have the answer? Oh, she's already got the answer. Okay. Well, those of you that don't have the answer, have I preached on I must have preached on this before or something. So here we go. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How many anxiouses did you guys count? Did you get six? I think there's six. So do you think it's a key word in this passage, six times? What does Jesus say six times? Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. And then notice what he says down there at the end of verse 30. Oh, you of little faith. What causes anxiety when we lack faith? When you're anxious, are you at peace? No. You're what? You're consumed by anxiety. So what does Jesus tell us to do in this passage? Did he say, sit around and wait for God's peace? What does he say? Look at verse 33. Seek first. 
Does he say seek peace? What does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Remember what I said last week? Don't go look for joy. Look for Jesus. And when you find Jesus, you'll find joy. Don't go looking for peace. Pray to Jesus, and he'll give you that peace. I think sometimes we can look for these things and forget the person that gives you those things. Jesus is the one that gives you the love. The Holy Spirit's the one that gives you the joy, the peace. So seek the face of the Lord. And that's why Paul tells us there, in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. Seek the face of the Lord. Pray. You need peace. I need peace. Because Jesus tells us six times, do not be anxious. And God promises to give it to you. Second Thessalonians 3.16 says what? Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way the Lord be with you all. That's a great promise. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace when? At what? All times and in what? Every way. That's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? So the Lord gives us his peace. Now, when Paul says this peace will guard, the peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, the word guard was a military term. It really meant that peace stands on duty to keep anything out that would bring anxiety. It's like this peace is standing guard over your heart to not let anything in that was, that's going to bring anxiety. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What are we to cast upon Jesus? All of our anxieties. You guys remember the movie A Few Good Men? Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. What's the famous line at the very end? You can't handle the truth. Okay, think about it this way. Can God handle your anxieties? Yes. That's why Peter says, cast, does he say some? Cast all your anxieties. God can handle it. Cast them on him. Now, let's talk about some things that are opposite of peace. Obviously, Jesus says, don't be afraid. He says, don't be anxious. Let's look at these in a little different terms. I think they're all kind of the same things, but I think there's, there's one thing that could be a danger if you're not careful. Okay. Anxiety, fear. Okay. Sometimes there's a restlessness that can lead to discontent, a lack of content, which ultimately can lead to despair. This is where I think it gets very dangerous because what starts out as some anxiety, if it's not careful, it, the full, what's the full end of anxiety? Despair. What's despair? What is despair? Despair is where you have no hope at all. You have no peace at all. You're just, you're at the end of your rope. And so we need to be very careful that we, that we, 
Learn to be content. Content. When you're not content, you're not at peace. What does it mean to be content? Paul says this in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned, I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. Now stop right there. I've learned to be content. Which means contentment is something you have to what? Learn. Can you go to Walmart and buy contentment off a shelf and say, hey, I want, I want 10 packs of contentment. Thank you very much. I'll put them in my pocket. How do you learn contentment? Through experience. Through trials. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's interesting. We talked about this Monday morning in my men's group, so you two heard this before. But Philippians 4.13 is probably the most famous passage in Philippians, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we quote that. We put it on bumper stickers. We put it on mugs. Do you realize that in the context that Paul's preaching that or teaching that, it's related to contentment? So the all things that I can do is really tied to contentment, peace, anxiety, content. Now, it's very interesting, the Greek word content. When you go to Paul's other books, he, the, the ESV translates it a little bit differently. But 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The word sufficiency in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 is the same word for content in Philippians 4. So think about it this way. How do you experience contentment? God will give you everything sufficient that you need. Now, does that mean God gives you everything that you want? Everything that you need. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's talk about contentment for a, for a moment. Are you content? Don't answer this out loud. But are you content? Are you at peace? Are you content with where God's placed you? Are you content with your job, your life, your relationships? Now, there is such a thing as a, as a holy dissatisfaction. Like if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and you know God's got something greater for you and you're kind of coasting. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is God is sovereign over your life. And he's placed you where he wants you. Are you content with what God has for you? Are you restless? Are you anxious? Are you fearful? Are you despairing? Those are all the opposite of peace. And again, like joy. Does peace depend upon the circumstances in your life? Remember joy? You, you can be having joy and going through bad things. Can you have peace and still be going through bad things? Because what? It's the peace that Jesus gives. It's a peace that the world can't give. It's a peace that's part of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. What, what did Paul go through in his life? I mean, think about Paul. He says, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be at peace. 
2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You know, I may go on a digression here. I'm afraid that for a lot of people, maybe not so much now, maybe it could be now, but in the initial stages of COVID when there was the shutdown and the lockdown and everything, I was hearing a lot of people at the point of despair because they were separated, they were isolated. Um, my fear is that there's a lot of people across our city, maybe people you know, that are on the brink of despair. And, and I don't want any Christian to be there. We were talking about this in staff meeting, weren't we, Trina? And we were, I said, how many, of you, how many of you guys, and maybe you raise your hand, how many of you know somebody through this COVID experience that has said to you, or you have observed from their life that they were almost at the point of despair? Raise, raise your hand if you, like, what, almost, almost all of you. Now, the second question is, were they Christians or non-Christians? How many of them were non-Christians? How many of them were Christians? Half and half. So we need to be praying for each other that anxiety and fear would not lead to despair. That peace of Christ would guard our hearts at all times and all places. We'd learn to be content, that we'd give it to the Lord, we'd trust Him. Um, Jesus says, you have little faith. Um, one of the hardest things is to be anxious and to give it up to the Lord and just say, I'm giving it to you. Remember that old show from the 50s? I don't even remember that. I don't think I've ever watched an episode. Father Knows Best? Well, there's, that's good theology. Father Knows Best. Our Heavenly Father knows best what we need. Okay, so the first two types of peace that the Bible talks about is peace with God. Are you saved? Do you have your sins forgiven? Do you have peace with God? Are you reconciled with God through Jesus Christ in that redemption that comes through his cross? Secondly, as a Christian, when you're anxious, when you're nervous, when you're despairing, do you have the peace of God deep in your heart that passes understanding where he comes and he gives you that sense of his presence, he gives you that sense of calm, he gives you that sense of contentment where you have the peace of God? Both of these are very personal and private. Your personal relationship with God, your personal peace of God. But there's a third type of peace, and I think this is where the rubber meets the road. The third type of peace that the Bible talks a lot about is, number three, it's the relational peace with others that results from being a peacemaker. So if the fruit of the Spirit is peace, it's not just a sense of inner peace when you're anxious, but it's actually how are you demonstrating peace to others in your life? Are you being a peacemaker? Okay? So one of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, what's a peacemaker? What's a peacemaker? Well, it's a person marked with humility, gentleness, as opposed to arrogance and cockiness. Now, we're going to look at some Proverbs here and talk about what it means to be a peacemaker, a person of peace. 
A person ruled by peace. Okay, so if you're ruled by peace, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, then you should demonstrate peace in your relationships with others. Okay, Proverbs 13.10. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Now, insolence. When's the last time somebody said, you're being insolent? We don't use the word insolence. Is that the stuff you burn that makes your house smell good? No, that's incense. Insolence. We don't often use the word insolence, but here's what it means. Being arrogant and presumptuous. Being cocky. Trying to force your way through pride. If you act that way, what, what, is, what does the proverb say? If you act that way, what comes? Nothing comes but strife. Now, is strife the opposite of peace? When you think of strife, what do you think of? Turmoil, hardship, strife. But then what's the rest of the Proverbs say? Those who take advice is wisdom. You're willing to listen. You're willing to take advice. You're willing to move slowly. Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you're slow to anger. You're willing to look over a fence. You're willing to go slow. Proverbs 23, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. What's aloof mean? It's kind of an old word. What's aloof mean? To be aloof from strife. Anybody have a different translation besides the ESV? Brandy, you want to look that up? Proverbs 20, yeah, 20, verse 3. Okay, to cease, to keep aloof, to stay away from, to stop, to not. So it's an honor for a man or a woman to stay away from strife and quarreling and warfare, to be a peacemaker. Okay, and Paul says this in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to do that. Eager to keep the peace. So what does a peacemaker do? Blessed are the peacemakers. So a peacemaker seeks godly wisdom. A peacemaker is gentle, humble, meek, spirit-controlled, child of God by his or her very nature. To truly be a peacemaker, you have to be free from self. Self-promotion, self-interest, self-pleasure, self-centered. You've got to be a person... So a peacemaker, number one, in your very character, you're humble and you're gentle and you're one that is um, coming across not arrogant in your character. But also to be a peacemaker means that it's not just part of your nature that the Holy Spirit produces in you to be a person of peace. It means that you actually seek peace in relationships. So when you see strife, when you see turmoil, when you see 
relationships out of whack, you're a person that steps in and says, I'm going to be a reconciler. I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to try to bring reconciliation and hope and, and healing into these relationships. So um, Psalm 34:14. turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. What does it mean to pursue it? Chase it down. Chase peace down. Now, this is an interesting one that Paul says in Romans 12, 18. I want to spend a little time on this one. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, what's the, what's the, what's the, um, what's the standard or what's the model or what, what's the goal? To live peaceably. But what does Paul say? If possible, as far as it depends upon you. Which means what? There are sometimes peace isn't possible. And there's sometimes when it's not your fault, you've done everything you can do, and the other person is causing a problem. So there are times when you can do everything you can do by God's power and you've sought peace and it just doesn't come. Now, let's talk about, we talked about this when we talked about love a few weeks ago. Does truth get sacrificed on the altar of peace? And what I mean by that is, in other words, does being a peacemaker mean that we never offend anyone? We never talk about sin. We never call people to repentance. We never rebuke, never correct, never do anything that would be negative. Does a peacemaker mean that you just let people do what they want to do because you keep the peace? I don't want to offend. I don't want to rebuke. I don't want to confront because if I do, that may cause problems. So I'm just going to be a peacemaker and just let people continue on the road of doing bad stuff. Is that really what a peacemaker is? No, that's called an enabler. You're continuing to enable bad behavior and not addressing it. Is peace always the ultimate end? It may not. Jesus says this. <laughs> it's funny. Remember Jesus says, my peace I give to you. When you're anxious, I'm going to give you my peace. And then in Matthew, he says this. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. Well, which one is it, Jesus? Do you come to give us peace or not? Let's keep reading. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now what's Jesus saying here? Two different contexts. The John 14 is his disciples are there and they know that Jesus is leaving to go to the cross and he's comforting them and saying, don't be afraid. Here, at this point in Jesus' ministry, when he says, I, I've come to bring a sword, not peace, what's he really saying? I am the absolute Lord and Savior and I may disrupt families because of allegiances. Now, is he saying that you shouldn't love your family, you shouldn't love your mother, you shouldn't love your brother, your sister, your husband? Is that what Jesus is saying? 
what he's saying there is if anything takes priority or anyone takes priority over me, then you're truly not following me. So Jesus is basically saying, listen, if you truly embrace me as Lord and Savior, you need to truly trust me above all. And it may cause conflict in your family. There may not be peace in your family. Now, there's some things that we've got to be absolute on that may not cause peace. Okay, so for example, there may be people that come to Emmanuel that have a problem with some of the stances that we take on biblical truth. And I could meet with them and say, for the sake of peace, we'll lessen what we believe so we can all get along. But would I do that? You guys know me. Would I do that? No, I wouldn't do that to keep the peace. Some people would do that to say, what's more important is the relationship, the peace. We don't want to lose people, so I'm going to sacrifice the truth for the peace. Okay? So every Wednesday today, but every Wednesday usually I pray with seven other pastors. Well, six. There's seven of us. And it's interesting because today we had a great conversation about polity, about each other's polity, about baptism, about membership, about elders, about all these different things. And it's different how, how we're all different. And, and, and we, we're, we hold to the truths that, are, that, that bind us together. We, we all believe in the dogmas of Scripture. But I, I looked at the guys and I said, yeah, we have some differences. Like, you know, you speak in tongues, I don't. You're a dispensationalist, I'm not. You believe you can lose your salvation, I don't. And, you know, we just go around the corner and say, there's some secondary things that, you know, we can agree to disagree upon, but we love each other. We can pray together. We can have joint worship services together. We can bear our hearts to each other. I'm partners with you guys because we believe on the essentials. There are some pastors in town I cannot partner with. I cannot do that because of their stance on biblical truth. If I were to meet with them, and we've gotten accused by some people in town, I didn't know this until you know, this summer, but um, some of the other pastors in town think that we're exclusionary because we leave some people out of our group. And it's kind of purposeful, and not on purpose. Well, yeah, it is on purpose, but there are just, I'm not going to sacrifice truth for peace in all situations so let me ask you this what would be the most extreme what would be the most extreme example of where there was not peace but there was truth i I can think of one but let me just explain to you what that might be what happens if there's a church split over a very fundamental doctrinal issue let's say let's not say emmanuel because this hopefully this won't happen but let's say there's a church out there and um, half the congregation believes that Jesus is not fully God. And the other half believes he is fully God, fully man. He's God's son. Is that a huge issue to divide over? Yes. Do you keep the peace over that and keep together as a church over that? What would you have to say? we may have to split and break relationships and break peace because at this point, the truth is more important. Okay, you gotta be really careful what those truths are. I've done my dogma doctor preferences thing before to you guys. I don't have a whiteboard behind me, but a lot of churches split, oh, not over like essential truths, they split over preferences. 
I didn't like the color of the carpet. I didn't like the praise team. I didn't like the pastor. He preached too short. I didn't like the pastor. He preached too long. I didn't like the fact that they didn't use the King James Version. I didn't like the fact that they didn't have a choir. I didn't like the fact that they didn't have home groups. They only had Sunday school. I didn't like the fact that they didn't shake my hand during the welcome time because we have COVID now and we can't shake hands. I don't like the fact, I mean, I don't like. Okay. Is that a reason to split or is that a truth issue or is that a preference issue? That's where you have to work on relationships and bring peace together. Okay, so what I'm saying is, is that we want to be peacemakers. We want to seek for peace. We want reconciliation. We want the church to be together. We want relationships to be whole. But Paul says sometimes, if at all possible, as far as it depends upon you, be a peacemaker, but it may not be possible. Okay? So peacemakers in our homes, peacemakers in our church, peacemakers in our community, peacemakers in our workplace, peacemakers wherever God's placed you. So um, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. God's not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Aim for restoration. Live in peace. So the ultimate goal is to aim for restoration, to aim for peace, to live in peace, be a peacemaker. Um, Colossians 3.15 says, um, And the peace of Christ, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ, what does that word say? Let the peace of Christ do what in your hearts? Rule. Rule. Have charge of your hearts. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace among yourselves. And then Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace. Okay. So, peace of God, peace with God, peace with others. So, let's go to the Old Testament. This is probably a story you haven't seen in a long time. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. Okay, so let me give you the context because we're jumping right into the Old Testament and sometimes we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as we should be. And so some of these stories we're not as familiar with, but let me remind you of King David, okay? At this time in David's life, he's not the king. He's got his band of men that are traveling around with him and Saul is the king. And in chapter 24, it's that interesting scene where David could have killed Saul in the cave, but he doesn't. He spares his life because he knows he's the king. And so in Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25, David and his men, his warriors, are hanging around this guy named Nabal's um, ranch, I guess you'd call it. He has a lot of sheep and goats. And they're kind of basically protecting Nabal from raiders or invaders. And so they're they're kind of taking a respite there and and hanging out next to this guy that's pretty rich named Nabal. And his wife is named Abigail. 
So what we're going to do is I'm going to read this whole story, and then we're going to come back and I'm going to explain it, because I think it's more important to read the whole story in one setting. So it's a long passage, but I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to come back and explain it. Okay? Is everybody there? So 1 Samuel 25, um, we'll skip verse, uh, the, the first part where, where the death of Samuel. Let's just pick up where it says David and Abigail. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's a lot back then. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Or Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever your hand, or please get ever what you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Okay, I'm gonna stop. I, I said I was gonna read the whole thing. I'm gonna stop and explain because we may stop there. Okay. So David and his men have kind of been providing cover for these shepherds out there, and they haven't stolen anything. They've been honorable. And so David says, hey, this guy's rich. Nabal, he's got tons of resources. Let's just send 10 men to go ask him, um, would you give us whatever you have? We're hungry. Maybe you could spare a couple of sheep. You know, my men are hungry. You know, we're good guys. I'm David. Would you give us something to eat? Now, one thing you need to know about Nabal, Nabal means fool. It's the Hebrew word for fool. So the guy's name is fool. And down in verse 17, you'll find out that he's a worthless man. Um, Isaiah 32, 6. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. A fool in the Bible is not someone who's like lug-headed, that, you know, is missing a few marbles. That's not what a fool is. A fool in the Bible is someone who's a wicked person who despises God and treats people really badly. They often call a fool a worthless person. So Nabal is a fool. Now what do they describe about his wife? She was discerning and beautiful. He was harsh and badly behaved. Okay? Now, David sends his men. Nabal, we want some sheep. We've been good guys. We haven't taken anything of yours. Would you please bless us? Now, how does the fool Nabal respond? Let's go to verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? (laughs) 
What does Nabal say? I have no idea who this David is. He could be, for all I know, he could be some fool that ran away from his, his master and he's out here trying to take advantage of me. I have no idea who David is. I'm not going to give him anything. And so how does David respond? <laughs> Verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men <laughs> went up with David while 200 remained with the baggage. What did David say? Okay, if that's the way Nabal's going to act, I'll take, I'll take 400 of my men and we'll show him who's in charge here. So David's like, strap your, strap your swords on, guys. We're going to go, we're going to kill him and his whole family. That's not the way you treat King David. Who does he think he is? I'm David. He's nobody. Okay, but then providentially, verse 14, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both night and day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot even speak to him. So what does the servant go? If I go tell Nabal what David's going to do, he's such a fool, he's not going to even listen to me. He's a worthless man. So I'm going to you, Abigail, because you're kind. You're beautiful. You're discerning. Here's the thing. David's men were good to us. They didn't cause us any problems. But your jerk of a husband went out there and basically railed at him. And now David's got 400 men coming to kill us. You can do something about this, Abigail. Your husband's a fool and nobody can reason with him. And, and he may just like get us all killed. Okay, so what does Abigail do? Verse 18. Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. She was doing a lot of cooking real fast there. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Of course she didn't tell him. And as she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said... Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. She comes with all this food, and what does David say? We were good to you, but by this time tomorrow, everybody's going to be dead. And what does Abigail say? When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Okay, does she know who David is? Don't know. Does she know he's the anointed king to be? Either way, she knows that he's the one in charge that's going to send 400 men to come kill them. So she bows down before him. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. 
Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. What does she say? She comes down and says, David, I humbly come before you. My husband's name is Fool because he's a fool. He's living up to his name. Please don't harm us. The Lord, look at verse 26. The Lord has sent me to restrain you from blood guilt. So what's David's response to the way he was treated by Nabal? Impulsive, retributive justice. Peacemaker, Abigail, comes and says, Okay, David, my husband's a jerk. His name's Jerk. He's living up to his name. You need to not act this way. And the Lord has sent me to restrain you from acting in blood guilt. And then something interesting happens because she starts to say some things that maybe she knows more than she lets on. So Abigail is a peacemaker. This is back to your notes here. Abigail is a peacemaker. The Lord uses her to restrain David from acting foolishly, violently, and ultimately sinning. So there in verse 26. Okay, verse 27. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out from all the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dwelt with my Lord, there, remember your servant. Okay, it gets confusing because Lord, Lord. Okay, anytime L-O-R-D in all caps is used, he's talking about the Lord God. L-O-R-D, lower, lowercase, she's talking about David. Now, it's interesting. What does she say to David? David, you're anointed of the Lord to be king one day. Notice what she says there. She says there in verse 30, when the Lord, that's Yahweh, when God has done to my Lord David according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you what? Prince over Israel. She basically says, listen, David, forgive my husband the fool, but more importantly, remember that you're going to one day be the king of Israel. And when you look back on this, don't be guilty for shedding innocent blood. My, me and the servants... We have nothing to do with how evil my husband is. And if you kill all of us, you're going to regret it as king. That's not the way a king should act. So Abigail comes in as a peacemaker and says, David, you, you're, you need to be the bigger man. You're going to be king one day. And this is not the way that kings are supposed to act. Okay. Let me go back and make sure I didn't skip something here. All right, let's keep going. Verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion 
And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice and have granted your petition. In verse 39, uh, wait just a minute here. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um, David, I'm trying to find here in my notes if I remember. Oh, yeah. Back in 1 Samuel 22, Saul, the king, killed a priest at a town called Nob. He acted irrationally, the way a king shouldn't act, in vengeance. And so, if David can't act like Saul, because we know Saul was the first king who was wicked. So Abigail's basically appealing to David, saying, you're going to be the future king. Kings don't act this way. You need to be honorable. Don't act impetuously. Don't act with violence. And then he's like, bless you, my dear. He's like, God sent you this day to restrain me. God sent you this day to be a peacemaker. I accept your gifts. Go in, go in peace. Now, that's not the end of the story. Let's go back and see what happens. Verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. Now, you read into the text here, and it was probably more like he was having an orgy. Like he, he was, it was a drunken orgy fit for a king. He was just, so if, if David had taken matters into his own hand, the king would have been having this drunken orgy and David would have come in and killed all the men anyway. And so Abigail goes back to her husband and says, okay, I, I need to tell him he's safe and what happened and that we're not going to be attacked. I can't even tell him because he's drunk. I'll have to wait till tomorrow. He's partying hardy. I'll have to wait till tomorrow at breakfast to tell him. So here's what happens. Verse 37, in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. Now, that's maybe an Old Testament way of saying he had a stroke. He had a heart attack. I don't know exactly what happened. It just said he became like stone. And then here's the sad thing, verse 38. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So he did die, but did he die at the hands of David? He died at the hands of the Lord. Let's keep going. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail, Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Okay. Verse 39. What does David realize in verse 39? He realizes that Abigail was a peacemaker, 
used to restrain him from acting sinfully and that it was the Lord who avenged David. David didn't have to take matters into his own hand. He had to not act the way he, he should have acted. Uh, he was a man after God's own heart. So let's think about this passage of Scripture. What often happens when we're restless, angry, discontent, or anxious? We act like a fool. <laughs> we become Nabal. Somebody offends us. Something doesn't go our way. Somebody does us wrong. What's our first reaction? I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to take matters in my own hand. And what do we need in those moments? The peace of God to guard our hearts so that we can be a peacemaker. How does God often help us in those times of anxiety and foolishness? The Lord sends a peacemaker to intervene and calm us down. So Abigail was a peacemaker between Nabal and David. If David had killed Nabal's men's men, David would have been a Nabal. He would have been a fool. So Abigail prevented David from acting like a fool. Her husband was already a fool. He's acting the way he always acts. But a king acts better than that. So a great story, especially if you're a woman, it's a great story of how a strong woman came and used her um, God-given ability to be discerning and use discretion uh, to, to help prevent a major catastrophe from happening. So, all right. Any questions on that story? Peace and forgiveness. I, I think they do. Um, forgiveness is more of a verb to forgive. Peace is more of something that you receive from God as that internal sense of security. But I would say that peace comes from forgiveness. When you don't forgive, when you don't forgive, are you at peace? No. With yourself and with that other person. When you do choose to forgive, is there reconciliation? Hopefully. Sometimes. Does that answer your question, Sean, or... If David would have forgiven him. Okay, that's the realistic way. We know the Bible's true because it's realistic. <laughs> what should have David done? On the ball, he's a fool. Let's just move on to the next town and find somebody else. How, how did David take it? Personal attack, personally, he's like, this, this fool's going to treat me this way? Okay, guys, let's get, our, <laughs> let's get our swords and let's go. So David's a sinner in that moment. He should have what? Forgiven. We look at the Old Testament like, why don't they do the right thing? And then we look at our lives and like, why don't we do the right thing? It's easy to point to them and say, how come, they didn't, how come they're acting this way? Those crazy Israelites in the Old Testament. Oh, mirror. How, do, how come I act this crazy way, the way they act in the Old Testament too? So we, sometimes, but Paul says in, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Old Testament was written for our example of what not to do. So, anyway.
All right, so the types of peace we've seen in the Bible. The peace with God is the first kind of peace. Peace with God that comes... Okay, let me go on to the next slide here. Peace with God that results from being saved, forgiven, and accepted by God. This type of peace is permanent. The peace of God, or peace with God. That's going from from lost to saved to being forgiven to being accepted to being justified. The second type is the peace of God. This results from prayer, seeking God's guidance. This type of peace is an internal sense of confidence the Holy Spirit gives you during times of anxiety. And the third type of peace is peace with others where you strive to be a peacemaker and you seek healthy, loving relationships. You're at peace with others. So really, you can think about it this way. Are you at peace with God and are you at peace with others? And you really can't be at peace with others unless you're at peace with God. So that has to come first. But then there's a great, there's a great promise that comes in the end of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, 20 through 21. I love this passage of scripture. Now may the God of what? Peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The God of peace promises to what? Equip you. What does it mean to equip you? To give you everything you need to do his will for his glory, the God of peace. So, we can have the confidence that as we live the Christian life and we face whatever trials and issues come our way, the God of peace will be working in us and equipping us and not leaving us to ourselves. Do you have peace with God? Do you have the peace of God? And do you have peace with others? Romans 16.20 The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. And let's hear Jesus' words again that we started with from John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace with God, peace of God, peace with others. Peace is part of the fruit of the Spirit that only the Holy Spirit can, can give us. So do you guys have any questions observations ramifications clear as mud I guess I don't know well if not I'll let you guys go I think, let's just go back to Galatians for a moment, just real quick. 
because I'm, I'm thinking ahead. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit, and we're supposed to be in here for an hour and a half, I'm not sure that I can do like one of these every week. So next week, patience. We may combine patience. I may be able to do patience all in one, I'm not sure, but like kindness and goodness we may put together and faithfulness and gentleness. We may do two, two at a time just because I think love, joy, and peace I can stretch out because there's a lot of material in the Bible on it. Some of these other ones, I mean, I, mean, I don't know how I'm talking an hour and a half on patience. By the end of it, you're like, when's he ever going to be done? I, I need patience to get through this thing, or whatever. So <laughs> patience. <laughs> anyway, so come next week, and we'll, we'll figure out what we're gonna, I'll figure out what we're going to do by the time we get to next week. So. All right, if there's no other questions, let me pray for us, and then you can go wait for your kids. All right, Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, we do. Um, my, my prayer is that everybody in this room will have peace with you, God their sins being forgiven. But Lord, um, I, I just pray also that there would be the peace of God. Lord, I know there may be some in this room tonight that are anxious, um, they're restless, they're, they're, they're lacking content, they're, they're maybe fearful. Lord, I pray none of them are at the point of despair, but Lord, would you grant them peace deep in their hearts that passes all understanding, Lord. Let, that, let, let them experience that peace in a very deep and powerful way. It just gives them a sense of calm, a sense of security, a sense of your presence that you'll never leave them or forsake them. You'll be with them through whatever they face. And Lord, help us to be peacemakers. Lord, help us to have peace in our relationships. Help us not to be people of strife. Help us to be gentle. Help us to be humble. Help us not to be arrogant. Help us to be seeking peace wherever we can for your glory. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us peace. And Jesus, thank you for being the Prince of Peace. Let peace rule in our hearts as we leave this place. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.